Good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke chapter 14. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Jesus, of course, has said some pretty shocking things, particularly this phase of His ministry life. And sometimes the text before us that we began to address last week gets a little confusing. If we are saved by sovereign grace, and that is true, and if it is true then that there's nothing we can do to merit our salvation, then why does Jesus challenge the crowds around Him in this text to consider the cost of becoming a disciple? There should be no cost to the believer, or so we might assume. I can't earn salvation with my own righteousness. That much is clear in Scripture. I have nothing good about me to offer to God. I can't do anything from this point on until I die that would make me worthy of salvation. I have nothing that I can offer to God that would be fitting for such a gift as being a disciple of Christ. I can't even earn what it means to follow Jesus. It is also clear in Scripture that Jesus did, as the hymn says, pay it all. He did pay it all. I didn't atone for my own sin. You didn't atone for your own sin if you're here today and you're in Christ. The payment for our salvation was made by our Savior. He offered Himself as the blood price. So from that perspective, the cost of my salvation isn't laid on me, it's laid on Jesus Christ. To redeem you and I, it would cost Jesus the laying down of His life. And so therefore, just frame it up in your mind. If He alone paid the price for our redemption, then why would He halt His would-be followers in this crowd and challenge them with what it would cost them to be one of His disciples? That is very interesting. If he is challenging them as to what it would cost them, and yet they could never pay anything to earn their way to heaven, then Jesus must be dealing with something that is maybe not what you expect, but certainly enough of a concern, a dangerous concern. There can be only one reason that Jesus would stop the followers that are running around with him, calling themselves his disciples, and challenge them about what it would cost them. There can be only really one reason. And it is simply this, the danger of false assurance. The danger of false assurance. We could call it by another name, superficial faith. It's the danger of naming Jesus as your master, but not truly knowing Jesus. Now, the Lord himself, when he was preaching in that great sermon on the mount, he addressed this very issue, and he, he warned the people, listen, there are false prophets and false teachers. They're going to come along, and they're going to lead you to what they say is a messianic path. They're going to lead you on what they say is the path to life. But in Matthew 7, it records that Jesus warned the crowd, listen, not everyone who goes through their whole life saying they're a follower of the Messiah is going to face God and hear, well done. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day is of me. They're going to say on that day, didn't we do all this ministry in your name, they even said, in your name. We said we were disciples of Jesus. 
And Jesus said, then I'm going to declare to them. Think about that. He said, I will declare to them, depart from me. I don't know you. I've never known you. Why? Because you're a worker of lawlessness. You love the old life. You love, in reality, what you have come from. You, you name my name, but you don't live for me. You don't know me. You don't want me. Nothing has really changed. You're a false conversion, he said. You have a superficial interest in me. You perhaps have crafted a Jesus of your own ideas and a moral self-help Jesus that makes you feel better. It was 30 years ago now that a controversy exploded in evangelicalism and still reverberates today uh, in a variety of fronts. It was sparked essentially by a book that hit the shelves in 1988 written by Pastor John MacArthur of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. The book was called The Gospel According to Jesus. And at the time of the writing, Dr. MacArthur was pastoring his church there, Grace Community Church, at the time for about 19 years at that point. And he states in the introduction of the book that he wrote it because of a trend he was seeing in evangelicalism, in churches. The trend was that people were professing Christ as their Savior, but over time, you could see that there was no substantive difference between their their life prior to conversion and their life after their so-called conversion. And so the concern was that the church was being flooded with people who liked the idea of a Savior who died for their sins and uh, forgives them of their sins, but it was also true of many of them that they didn't want to live in a life of true grace and true faith reflecting their master Jesus Christ. They did not want to be transformed. They didn't want anything to change. Now we have to understand that that was a controversy in the church because of this very reality. You're putting your finger on false profession. People may name the name of Christ and say that He's gracious to them and has forgiven them, but grace does not merely change a person's standing before God and then leave His character untouched. Grace isn't like that. True grace, the true grace of the gospel, when that grace invades a dead heart, it comes with a power that teaches the Christian to deny ungodliness. We just read it in Paul's words to Titus. For the grace of God, which brings salvation to all men, has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny our old life, to walk away from it, to love what Christ loves, to love Him, and to follow what He says we ought to be doing. The grace of God teaches that. It instructs that. Where does it instruct it? In the heart. Your heart becomes the classroom of grace, and grace begins to tell you how to live as you come and read God's Word and read what the Master wants as our discipler. Well, despite remaining sin and weakness, which we all have, true grace supplies the power to change, to walk by the Spirit and not carry out the deeds of the flesh, Galatians 5 says. And what about faith? People say they have faith in Jesus all the time. Neither is true faith merely just understanding the historical facts. 
People actually hear the facts of the gospel and they will agree with it. They'll agree with the data. They'll make a verbal profession and say they believe the facts of the gospel. Yes, I believe Jesus did live on the earth. I believe he did die. And I believe he did rise from the dead. They will agree with those facts, but nothing in their life changes. Listen, true faith is a part of the package deal which includes true change. True change begins with repentance and faith and a spirit-produced longing to be like Jesus. This is what was on the heart of Pastor MacArthur when he wrote that book years ago. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and it was back then that all of that cultural revolution was taking place, and the church was indeed becoming superficial in its presentation of the gospel. People were flooding into the church, no question about it. The Jesus movement in Southern California where I grew up, man, young people were flooding from the beaches right into the door of the church, and they were naming the name of Christ. They were saying they loved Jesus, but the presentation of the gospel was already beginning to get thin, and no one really began to look at someone's life because, after all, if you went to a Bible study and you said you loved Jesus and you listened to the cool music that was flooding into the church and you just kind of went along with the crowd, no one questioned any of that, really. And the moment they did, uh, there was always some sentimental sort of ideology that swept you up in any way. People were coming to the church whose idea of grace and faith was really more just for their life, a window dressing. To them, grace was God simply waving His hand and forgiving all your sin. And that has really kind of been how people view grace today. You have now decades of that sort of ideology in the church. I remember uh, speaking at, uh, at a Christian university at one point, uh, and you know how it is with Christian schools. They, they often don't remain Christian schools except in name only. And I remember speaking at one Christian university that, that named itself as a Christian university, but I often wondered. And I remember after I preached in the chapel, one of the administrators got up there and just forgave everybody's sin. They just said, you're all forgiven. I mean, that is a result of this dumbed down gospel that has been happening now for decades. It's almost like God just sort of winks at sin, whether you wanted to follow Him as Lord of your life or not. And, and the idea of faith is reduced to just merely agreeing that Jesus, like I said, walked the earth and died on a cross and rose from the dead, and then you invited Him into your life, and you're saved. There it is. You get to tell people that. People gave assurance all the time to you. Did you pray that prayer? Yes, I prayed that prayer. Then you're saved. Well, you're not saved by praying a prayer. You're saved by grace. And I'm thrilled that someone professes Christ. But how many was Jesus aware of who were walking around with him that day? They needed to be thinking about assurance in a different way. They needed to, they needed to be thinking differently about grace and faith. You say, well, why was that book such a controversy? It sounds like it was needed at the time. Well, it was a book that was poking the whole generation of people in the eye. People who were convinced they were going to heaven, but who loved the things of the world. And that book was saying, then you don't really 
know Christ because Christ changes your life. You're not perfect. No Christian is perfect. We live in the realm of weakness, etc., etc., but no Christian, no true Christian is happy there, comfortable there, or ever really ultimately stays there. No Christian. Because we have power over that and we're miserable in our sin. And when we, when we see our weakness, we long to be like Jesus, even if we don't want to hear it right now. That's true Christianity. There are whole kinds of people that got upset at that whole message because they didn't want to live for Jesus at all. They loved the world. They loved the things of the world. They just wanted to attach themselves to a religious idea. And then it was offensive because parents were desperate to believe that their children are saved because when they were little, they raised their hand, they signed a card, whatever, and they made a profession of faith and parents really didn't like the fact that when their kids walked away from it all and, and they weren't really interested in the Lord at all, that someone, they wanted someone to tell them, but they're still saved. Did you ever struggle with that? With your unsaved kids? Sure. That's difficult. But it, that book was offensive to them, too, because it was suggesting that, you know, your kids walked away because, like First John 2 says, they are not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they walk away from the body of Christ in order that it's manifested that not everyone who professes Christ is a real Christian. I know that's hard for a family member to take, but that's what Jesus is trying to deal with. Questioning other people about their salvation. It was based on the absence of any real desire to become like Christ. And when you point that out, it's hugely offensive. The book was exposing superficial faith and false assurance that people were walking around with. Can I just encourage you with something? Here are some things that, that you might have been convinced mean that someone's actually saved, but they, they don't mean that at all necessarily. Visible morality, someone who uh, lives a more moral life or a life according to some principles in Scripture, that doesn't prove they're a believer. How about they can tell you the facts of the gospel or recite theology or quote Bible verses, that doesn't prove they're a Christian. How about active in ministry, maybe they lead a ministry, maybe they've been in the church all their life, that doesn't prove they're a Christian. How about just feeling bad about your sin, guilt over sin, sorrow over sin? That's true. Some people can say, I feel very convicted. That doesn't mean they're Christians. Some people have assurance that they just tell you flat out, I know in my heart I'm a believer. But do you see any of that power in your life, in your desires, in your affections? What is your love for Christ like? Some people look back at some experience. That doesn't prove you're a believer. You know what the fruit of authentic faith is? It's a true love for Jesus Christ that results in a longing to be like Him. An imperfect life, though, we may live and fall short of being like Christ every day, sometimes every half hour. But you long to be like Christ. That's a sign of true faith. True repentance from sin, that is to say, you're broken over it because of how it offends God and you long to change it. You, you strive to change it. You forsake your old life. You forsake it. You get away from your old life. You don't love it. You might fall into it, but you get away from it. You long to run from it. 
a growing humility in your life. That's a fruit of the Spirit. A love for God's glory, wanting to see God honored and, and hating the sin that dishonors Him. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Dependent prayer doesn't mean that prayer itself is an automatic guarantee that you're in Christ, but dependent, humble prayer that changes you, that humbles you before God. How about loving your enemies? That's a sign of the fruit of the Spirit, loving an enemy. We're like our Heavenly Father when we love our enemies. Separation from worldly things, that's a sign that not, not merely externals, but in here, in your heart. Your heart is separating from those things. That's a sign. And then just submissiveness to the commands of Scripture. You love Scripture. You love to submit to Scripture. You, you don't always submit to Scripture. You're, you're weak in it, but you love it. You long to do it. That's a sign of the work of the Spirit. You see, when you, when you talk about this kind of thing, it's not as if we're trying to take a, a true Christian's real assurance away as they walk with Christ and strive to grow in faith and godliness. We're not trying to do that. We come to a passage before us, like in Luke 14, and we're trying to expose false assurance. Jesus is not trying to take genuine Christian's assurance away. He's not trying to set all true believers on edge about their salvation. What he's trying to say is, if you have not considered what salvation is, you might be walking around with a false sense of security. You might be walking around with a false sense of security. Notice what Jesus says here. Verse 25, we saw last time, the crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me, and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says, first of all, no higher affections. And we're not talking about uh, uh, the perfection of your life, as we've often said. We're talking about the heart's direction of your life. This is your longing to have no higher affections than Christ, no higher love than Christ, no higher desire than to know Him and to walk with Him and to learn to be like Him so that every part of your life, both the inside and the outside, begin to reflect the light of the gospel, the light of who Christ is, the Redeemer's light, the one who saved you, the one who's who crushed your pride when you thought about the cross and the fact that he paid your penalty and every day we still sin the sins for which he died. That Redeemer is in here deep and every other love that comes up against him, you, you say to him, I want to get rid of that. I love to get rid of that. Oh, I would wish I wouldn't go back to that. I mean, here we are, worshipers of Christ by the power of the Spirit, and yet surrounding the great, wonderful place where we bow down to Christ are all these other loves that we have. And sometimes we just sort of move Him aside in the room full of idolatries and loves that we have, and we bow down to those loves. And when you notice you're bowing down to a higher love than Christ, that is right then and there, the moment when your heart ought to be saying, I do not want to be false in my assurance. Jesus, you told me if I come to you 
then all other loves from family loves to even loving my own life must pale compared to you. Help me move these idols out of my life. You have a a love that's higher than Christ? Say, how can you tell? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your affections? What do you think about most? Is it how I can grow in Christ every day? Or do you think about some other love that is in that place in your heart where you bow down? What is it? Is it that you love comfort and you love that more than Christ so that when some difficulty comes into your life, you, you just literally will run from following Christ? You love resources and security financial security, so that if something threatens that or the command comes from Christ to meet needs at, as a sacrifice in your life where you're not going to have some of your needs met because you're going to be helping someone else in a season that He asks you for, do you run from that opportunity or toward it? What about that relationship that you have been able to enjoy or you've longed for and finally are able to be a part of? What about that? That person doesn't take you to a greater love for Christ. That person maybe drags you down, or that person uh, doesn't promote the, the relationship you have with Christ. They just sort of create a benign following of Christ. What do you do about that? Whether it's a friendship, whether it's a, a boyfriend, girlfriend, a spouse, whether it's someone you really like to be with, What is your love? Is your love for Christ such that you begin to influence and permeate all that dynamic? Or do you love that more than Christ? Jesus says you can have no higher loves. What about your own safety? What about bringing the gospel in the face of what might cost you your your family relationship or or a job or, or even your safety somewhere? God calls you to go somewhere and the gospel is a threat to that environment. What does your heart do? That's the point. Jesus says, look, if you're going to follow me, you must think this through. You can't add me to a heart full of other loves that are going to take precedent. So if Jesus tells you a command and it pushes against a part of your life you don't like to push against, what do you do? That's a strong statement out of the gate by the Lord. You must have no higher affections than me if you want to follow me. You say, oh, I, I, I have a bunch of other loves, Pastor. I, does, does that mean I'm not saved? Not necessarily. What do you do with those? How do you think about those? How do you respond to those? Look, if the Spirit is in there, there's a war going on. And James 4 says those desires are waging war against the Spirit of God. What do you do with those? Do you go before the Lord and cry out, Lord, help me get rid of these loves? They're they're above you sometimes. You're below them. I don't think about you enough, long for you enough, walk with you enough, speak about you enough. I'm fearful and I love comfort and Lord, help me. Is that what you do? Or do you just casually and indifferently go along with all your other loves and you just added Jesus to it? Jesus, you better think about that. Moreover, he says in verse 27, you you must have no 
greater allegiance. No greater allegiance. Whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And we looked at that back in chapter 9 when Jesus had made a similar statement and put, the, put them to the test. This is the, the issue of allegiance. Carry your own cross. It's a metaphor for the death of yourself. The death of yourself. The death of your self-worship. Do you, do you grieve when, as we've been talking about in the previous series, you promote yourself? Do you grieve over that? I know we do it. I know we have pride, as we saw in that whole series, and many of you have spoken to me many times complaining about that series. I love that. I love what it did in our hearts as we shared together over those things. But what do you do with that? This, this allegiance issue has to do with self-exaltation and self-interest and self-preservation. That's what it has to do with. What do you love in your heart? Look, if you notice that you have self-interest, what do you do with it? Do you go before the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to be my only interest, my highest interest. I don't want to have other interests above you. If you call me to do something and it costs me these little self-interests over here, I want to kill them. I want to starve them. And what about preservation? Look, sometimes when my weakness is exposed, I hide. Jesus says, look, take up your cross and follow me. Be like me. Follow what I tell you to do. Confess your sin to one another. Follow what I call you to do. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What I call you to do is rejoice when I bring pressure into your life to increase your holiness and discipline you. What do you do with it? Do you say, I want you to be my highest allegiance, O God? In fact, in James chapter 1, just for a moment, put your finger there in Luke and... Here's how it's described in James 1, this whole idea of allegiances. You'll be familiar with the terminology James uses because in verse 8, he says, he refers to someone called a double-minded man, a double-minded person. Uh, sometimes your translations will say a doubter, or someone who hesitates, but actually it's, it's an interesting compound term. It's, it's you have two competing allegiances. If you wanted to translate it in its rawest form, two souls exist in you. Two allegiances. On the one hand, the person who is in the middle of a test has their faith tested by whether or not they are they are wanting what Christ purposes through their trial, or they are wanting what they want in life. And that's the whole point of it. Notice, he says, if you lack wisdom, verse 5, in this test, then ask God who gives generously, but ask in faith, verse 6, without any doubting, for the one who doubts, oh, he's like the surf of the sea, driven tossed by the wind, that man ought not to expect that he's going to receive any wisdom from the Lord, being a man of two allegiances. That's the point. And that's what Jesus is saying back in Luke 
14, verse 27, you cannot have two allegiances deep in your heart. You may at times act like you're more concerned about your own interests and your own preservation and, and your own exaltation. You might act like that, but what do you do with that? Are you casual in that style of life? Is that comfortable for you? Then maybe you're not a believer. Do you just go happily along being worshipped by yourself, exalting yourself, promoting your own interests, interests, preserving yourself in every context, and with, when it comes to Jesus and what He commands, there's disinterest or even apathy or maybe even hostility? You need to think about this, Jesus says, because you can't be my disciple if you're not willing to die to self and come after me. Come after me is a great phrase. Jesus uses it over and over again. He means, he means to come after him. That is to say, be a learner at his feet. Do everything he says. Act in every way he acts. Say whatever he speaks. Have the attitudes he has. In other words, mimic him. Mimic Christ. Is that you? You can have no greater allegiance than Christ. And then he gives... It's interesting, he gives two parables that speak of this third issue that he's addressing, and that is the, the issue of misplaced dependence. In other words, what are you trusting for your eternity? Will you be ashamed in the end because you thought you could build a spiritual life on the cheap, casually, you know, shortcuts? You thought you could attach yourself to Jesus, but you didn't really think about what he says about the gospel. Notice how he does it. Verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Now, this is a parable, so it has one point. The point here is a misplaced or miscalculated dependence. This is a person who tried to do it on the cheap. Now, the metaphor is construction in the parable, but we understand the spiritual parallel here is, look, when you face God, you're going to be ashamed that you laid some foundation other than the one that Christ laid. Now what? You weren't able to finish the job. You weren't able to actually get all the way to eternity and meet Christ in a faithful, power-filled life. You weren't able to do it. Why? Because back here at the beginning, you misassessed conversion. You have a, a misplaced dependence. You depended on something else. You trusted in some other version of the gospel. You trusted in some other story of the gospel. Maybe for you it was some experience you had in the past. Maybe for you, you've been living in a false assurance and, and sort of gotten it from your mother and your father and your parents or your grandmother, or some soft-hearted friend who never wants to look at your life and say that you might need to question some things. And you've liked that friend. You've liked them because you don't really want to deal with that. You, you're building a life in Jesus on the cheap. And he says that would be as, as shameful and, and sort of embarrassing as someone who's a general contractor who understands how to get a job done and knows how to get the resources together. And because they wanted to do, take shortcuts and not really think about this and they were casual about it, because they had a miscalculated dependence, they thought they could do the thing on the cheap, 
suddenly the thing is unfinished and the skill that was supposed to be applied has been squandered. Now what? Now no one wants to work with you. No one wants to uh, trust what you have to say about how to get the job done. No one. You have no influence, no credibility in that dynamic. And you know what? Sometimes people who say they know Jesus and have a false assurance because they have a gospel on the cheap, they are the ones that have no credibility when they're trying to tell somebody else about their life and their need. Why? Because they're not different. Do you know, if we were as a culture, an evangelical culture, as gospel-centered as we'd like to talk about, and if we were as bold about reaching the lost as we like to say and, and the numbers of missionary teams we send out, if they were true believers, all of them, and they were living a godly life different from the way they used to live, it just might be that it sends the world into shock, particularly if they happen to be in their 20s and they're living like that. Because the world doesn't, ha- doesn't think the church has any credibility anyway, and, and why not? The, the older people are dead and lifeless, and yet they sing the same hymns they've sung all their traditional life, but you get in their personal life, they're not reading Scripture. They don't care about Christ. All they care about is the, the tradition of coming to church and then going to have an early breakfast. And the young people, they're not leaving the world They're flooding into the church because they love to hear really bold speech. And they're not leaving the world. They love the world. They love it. They love its social media. They love its content. They love its worldliness. They love its movies. They love its media. They love love its pride. They love its arrogance. They love its boastful pleasures. They love it. And then they flood into a church on Sunday. The world isn't shocked anymore by our gospel witness. Why? Because we've done the gospel on the cheap. And people say, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Well, it's an unfinished building. It's not going the distance. It's not standing in the degradation of our culture around us. It's not, not having convictions for which you would die and live for Christ. It's not happening. Why? They, they miscalculated their dependence. They trust in some, some human resource that makes them think they can do it with shortcuts. Jesus says, you better think about that. Why would you build a bit? Why would a contractor with all that skill knowledge, why would they do something that in the end doesn't house anybody, doesn't protect anybody, doesn't be, become a shelter for anybody? No one can use it. It's just a foundation, unfinished, and now nobody trusts the guy. As ridiculous as that is, people do that with the gospel all the time, Jesus says. You're not thinking carefully enough about this. You're walking around following me along the hillsides, but you do not know what's coming. I'm calling you to die to self, and you are shortcutting the process, thinking you can just sort of get in line. And then he says, verse 31, speaking at least from a different angle, What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, won't first sit down and 
do two things. He'll consider whether, he has str- whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming with 20,000 or else while the other's far away, he sends a delegation to ask for terms of peace. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know that's how it's going to be. No king wants, wants to be defeated unless he's insane. No, you know what he does. He calculates, how many soldiers do I have? Let me understand my enemy. Let me understand the strategies. Can I win this? He doesn't go in unless he can win it, unless he's a fool. And there have been a few of those kinds of, uh, em- those emperors and generals who brought armies into battle foolishly and didn't calculate right and, and misplaced their dependence. They self-trusted. They were all trusting in themselves. They, they become ignominious in our history. But Jesus says it would be silly. We, we understand the ridiculousness of that. He would first calculate whether he can win. And if he can't win, he sends a delegation and starts working on terms of peace. Very shrewd. And so, just paralleling the spiritual and eternal reality Jesus is dealing with, you get the point. The point is, look, if, if this is a spiritual battle and you've got to win and you have no resources in and of yourself to win... You can't go up against Satan for your eternity. You can't come to God with your righteousness. Man, if, if you've said that you want to follow me, but you've heard what I've said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom. Blessed are those who come to me and believe in me. Look, if you cannot win your own spiritual battle, aren't you going to send a delegation to to ask for terms of peace, that's his point. You're going to go to Christ and you're going to think this through. Okay, I can't, I can't do this on my own. I need, I need to settle terms with the one I'm going to have to face. And that's what Jesus is saying to him. You're not thinking about settling terms with me. You're just walking around. You're going to fall away, or worse, you're going to be more and more self-deceived. You're going to have false assurance, and you could actually get to the place where you meet Jesus in the judgment, and you say, Lord, man, I did all this ministry in your name. And he says, I don't know you. I never knew you because you love lawlessness. You love to live for yourself. You have misplaced your dependence. You've trusted in you. And so it's not as though Jesus is turning to the crowd and saying, look, the cost for your salvation is you got to pay it. No, I'm the cost. I'm the price. I'll pay it. I'll put your sin on me. The cost to you is the death of you. Just like I am going to give my life You are going to give yours in grateful worship if you're my disciple. And you're going to have no higher loves and you're going to have no higher allegiances and you cannot have any misplaced affections, misplaced dependence. Strong words from the Lord himself. What are the basic truths taught in Scripture about genuine salvation? I'll just run through them and Just listen. We know that Christ's death on the cross paid the full penalty for our sins. This will will help you if you're sitting here sort of unsettled and saying, well, I don't know, or I don't know about this person, I don't know about myself, or or whatever. I'm not trying to take your real assurance away as a true Christian, but we are trying to see Jesus expose false assurance, so we've got to think about this. 
Christ's death on the cross paid the full penalty for our sins and purchased our eternal salvation. So it is His atoning sacrifice that enables our great God to justify the sinner freely without compromising His justice and His righteousness. Why? Because Christ is righteous and I am not. So in that exchange where I repent and believe in Christ, then Christ's righteousness is put to my account and all my sin is placed upon Him in His account as if He lived it and he, He's guilty for it. He, he isn't guilty of the actual sin, but it is imputed to His account and He pays for that on the cross. That is how God remains righteous and yet can justify a sinner in His presence. It is only by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, plus or minus nothing. No works are added. You can't earn your salvation. The cost of discipleship doesn't earn you salvation. The cost of discipleship is to, to think about the gratitude and worship that must be there to prove you are a true disciple. There are no self-improvements required by God before you repent and believe the gospel, Romans 10, 13. Eternal life is a gift, Romans 6, 23. And you're saved and fully justified before your faith ever produces a single righteous work. Did you know that? When I got saved, it was by repentance and faith, by the sovereign grace of God. I hadn't produced a single uh, act of grateful worship yet. All I did was repent of my sins and believe the gospel. Christians sin, we know that. I've said that already. Even in your strongest times of maturity as a Christian, you will constantly be waging a battle, an intense struggle against the flesh. That is true in Scripture. And genuine believers can sometimes commit very heinous sins, as you see in 2 Samuel with King David, and you see that in your own life. We sometimes commit terrible sins. That is true. But it's also true that True believers, true disciples of Christ think about sin the way he thinks about it. We're miserable in it. We're never comfortable, indifferent. We're never, I mean, we might be blind to it. it might be a blind spot we got to be exposed to so we can see it. But we are never hostile to Jesus in our sin and loving the world. And we are never uh, without miserable guilt in those things because the Spirit of God presses down on his people. And it may take us a while to see it. It may take us a while to grow through it. It may take us a while to battle it and gain the victory the Spirit provides, but nonetheless, Christians are always engaged in that, and Christians never ultimately reject Christ. This is true. Why? Because genuine faith and repentance have been bestowed by the Spirit of God, granted by Him, 2 Timothy 2.25. Repentance is a change of conviction. I now think about Christ differently than I did before. Before, I was in love with myself. I love to be exalted. Whoever Jesus was, whatever, yeah, he might add something nice to my life, but I don't want him if he's going to take away from my exaltation. When I came to Christ, my convictions changed. I now think about him, want to exalt him, and want to see myself decrease, even if my flesh battles that. And so, those who are, who are saved are saved apart from any effort of their own. Even faith itself is a gift of God, not a work of man. And listen, real faith cannot be short-lived or defective. It endures forever. It cannot be short-lived or defective. 
Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The object of our faith is Christ Himself. Not a church, not a past experience. The object of our faith is Christ. Real faith inevitably produces a changed life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, all things are made new. You're starting to change. Your old life is crucified in Christ. You now have the Spirit. You cannot, if, if, if the grace of Christ has come to your life, you cannot still live in sin comfortably as a custom of life without misery. Christians can't do that. If that's the way you live and you've merely attached yourself to the name Jesus, then this text is helpful for you helpful for you. Jesus is your Lord and Master. The Scriptures are clear. You've been bought with a price. You are not your own, Paul said to the Corinthians. You don't belong to you. And those who genuinely believe in Christ will love Christ. You may not always obey Christ, Genuine believers stumble and we fall, 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, but we persevere in faith, that same text says. And those who later turn completely away from the Lord, as I said in 1 John 2, prove that it was all just false assurance, false security. True disciples do not follow Jesus based on superficial ideas about what it means to be one of His. We don't have a misplaced dependence. We depend solely on Him. We've calculated this. The cost is everything. He has paid the price to justify us. You know what the cost is to you and me? We die. He is everything. He's everything in every arena of your life. He wants it all, wants to own it all, purchase it all, wants to control it all. There's nothing and no one more important in our lives than Christ. That's a true Christian. And we don't always live like it. But we help each other, don't we? And, you know, when someone says to you, you know... Is your assurance a false assurance? You shouldn't say, how dare you? I've been singing in the choir for years. Even off key. Sorry, that has nothing to do with salvation. You can't, you can't rely on things like that. You know what you ought to say when someone says, do you have a false assurance? Please tell me what you see. Because what's in my heart is that I love Christ. And I don't always have it on, in my desires and affections. And I don't always have it in my conduct. But I want it. Can you help me? So that my assurance becomes robust, fresh, and Christ-like. Beloved, there should be in our lives, in our hearts, no higher loves, no higher allegiances, and no higher dependence than Christ. Notice what he says here at the end. So then, verse 33, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. He's not talking about your earthly goods. He's talking about you. Now, your earthly goods are a part of you, so that's included. If he wants them, he can take them. You lay them on the line. 
That's where your heart's at. But you can't be His disciple when you're holding on to something that is a higher love or allegiance or dependence than Christ. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus.